0: That's a project that's been on kind of a long time in the making. So just an update on that, we did get the uh, development agreement signed with the City of Nelson last week, and so that's kind of one out of four permits or authorizations out of the way. The other three I've been assured we're likely going to get by the end of this week um, or into early next. So you can probably expect in the next month or so, you're going to see a whole bunch of, changes to that whole front street and, uh, and sidewalk area. So uh, be, be on the lookout for that. Um, so maybe what I'll do is I'll get you to uh, stand as you're able, and uh, we'll read the call to worship from Psalm 63, verses 1 to 5. It says, You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and perched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips my mouth will praise you. Let's worship together.
1: sister
2: And I just look at my buddy Dan and ask if he's happy with my sound. Yeah. All right. So you know, the interesting thing about a pandemic is you don't actually occupy a space. And I'm talking about myself for two years, and then you look at it and you're like, "Yeah, sure, you know everybody. I know many of you. But I won't assume that everybody knows me, so I'll spend one minute just saying. I've got my uh, two homies over here, uh, Zach and Rachel, and I'm grateful for their support and uh, two of my kids. And the other half of my family is all in Ontario right now. My wife, Teresa is visiting my daughter, Madeline, in Toronto, and I have an oldest daughter, Hannah, who hangs out in Ottawa. And I work uh, predominantly at the hospital as an emergency physician. And uh, there's other little iterations of of my work life, but we've been here since uh, 2014. The first two years uh, of our time here, we hung out uh, in the Balfour Zone, rented a house there, and uh, went to the Balfour uh, Covenant, and have since um, 2016, and where we live now in Blewett, um, been part of this greater group, uh, but I'm just aware that everything's different. Everything's topsy-turvy, if you will. And so when I was thinking about uh, what I wanted to share today, and uh, you know I'm grateful to Jeff for the opportunity to do that, and I wish he and his family safe travels, I understand they're, they're in Alberta right now and coming back early part this week. Uh, I was like, well, what, what, what would be the most topical, what would be the thing that I'm called to share on? And, and the thing that I've grappled with, and I uh, have understood that many others have too, is this concept of finding peace in times like this. And so I've titled my um, uh, message, you know, Finding Peace in a Time of Pandemic and War. And, and I have a couple of, of aims, and, and they're, they really break down into three zones. One is to you know, feel the feels and, 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 and then maybe lead into a little bit of thinking about that. Um, I've got a section today that I'm sort of calling Storytime with Jim, and it's about, it's about some vignettes that I, I hope uh, leave uh, uh, points, you know, uh, quickly identifiable points that actually are like action concepts. And then I wanna wrap it all up, tie it up with a passage from 1 uh, Peter that, that I think speaks straight to all of the concepts uh, that society, our local zone has been grappling with and and what on a bigger faith perspective we're all grappling with. Because basically, you know, these are consequential times. And I don't know about you, but I find myself measuring the pandemic in, in months. And so for me we're at twenty-four months. And so 24 pandemic months And then one very um, uh, tragic war month, you start overlaying the two, and you realize that uh, that feels like an awful lot. And the word weary comes to my heart. And so I freely acknowledge I am weary. And lots of other people tell me they're weary too. You know, one of, the, one of the issues at the root of all the weariness that people talk about is, is a variation of grief or grieving. And for, you know, many parts of uh, grief, uh, there are some very tangible things to point to. So, a loved one might be gone. A, a relationship might be over. A, a job may have been lost. And tangible grief is a big deal. Big, big deal. It takes a lot of work to process through stuff like that. But the thing that I've heard the most that people talk about is a kind of psychological grieving. And it could kind of be summed up in a sentence, you know, like a longing for the way things used to be. Do you you ever take a moment and just sit and ponder what you were thinking about back in the fall of 2019 before you even heard that there was a virology lab in Wuhan? I I have done a little bit of thinking like that, and I realize that it's it's a night and day kind of phenomena. I, I just was living my life a different way than I'm living it now. We had it good back then, right? Can we go back, please? The problem is that history tells us it doesn't work that way. You know, events move on. The world moves on. Things can't be undone. You can sing the song, If I could turn back time. All you want, but you can't. And, uh, you know, I know many people are just either angry or distressed, or deeply troubled by all of this pandemic stuff, all of this war in Eastern Europe stuff, all of this stuff. and It makes sense. So how do we process the sum of all those troubles? How do we understand what to think about? How now shall we live? So I came with a few uh, suggestions. I do have one big core theme, and uh, I definitely, you know, want to register that I agree that the burdens are plentiful, and there is nothing about what I'm saying here today that is meant to glibly throw out any kind of best wishes. I am vibrating with the understanding that things are tough, but I am also confident and have assurance that there is a way, a true path to peace. And it's grounded in our faith and how we choose our responses. Like, like many of you over the last number of months, you know, I, I have been prompted to take deep dives into my thoughts, myself, my purpose, my meaning, the flaws in our society, issues that we're facing. And one of the core grappling points that, uh, you know, I've recognized is that fear and anxiety come from a feeling of powerlessness or an inability to control. Now, there's lots of other sources of fear and anxiety, but fear and anxiety are often rooted in a sense of powerlessness or an inability uh, to control. And some of the unhappiest people I've ever met, if you talk with them long enough, you realize they put their faith in the wrong things. You know, people will be increasingly unhappy as they see the institutions, the human creations that they thought would bring them fulfillment, or that they thought would be their guarantees. If you will, fail, or crack, or creak. And uh, when, when I, uh, so I work in the emergency department, and when, when people come in with a mental health problem, as part of the time I spend with them, uh, the one key uh, point that I always want to have at least um, uh, explored is, are they a person of spirituality, are they a person of faith? And I would tell you that universally, in the last eight years, everyone who has an emergency presentation of that kind of uh, issue has a huge void there. Huge void. Now they've got lots of other things going on, there's social determinants of health, there's there's real organic problems, but we're not meant, humans aren't meant to have a huge void in that realm. And when we do, issues creep up. And so the way I see it, you know, there really only are two choices in life. We either submit that there is a God and that that God is worthy of worship and is in charge or there is not a God and anarchy reigns and all the stuff that good citizens tell themselves fill in the boundaries of their life or perhaps give them meaning breaks down, breaks down under careful scrutiny. And if there is a God and you waste even one day of your life worrying, then, then, actually, you've wasted something precious. If there isn't a God, well, let's all worry, and I'll be at the front of that line, because that's a problem. But, but you know that I don't believe that. And, and I didn't come today um, with the decision that I was gonna spend uh, this message justifying the existence of God, and yet I, I believe it with every fiber of my being. Uh, you know, I love the way that books like um, a classic as Lise Drobels, A uh, Case for Christ, it, You know, uses kind of a detective work style to layer in um, many of the uh, uh, foundations and, and the justifications for that. And I would happily defer to those kind of uh, texts for this point. But as I, uh, you know, grapple with how now shall we live and I do deep dives into thinking, I am always amazed at the harmony and the parallels in the great big universe of thoughts that are out there. Because not everybody is Christian on our planet and throughout history. But even when you read uh, things, and and there's a popular uh, um, wave right now for Stoicism, well, Stoicism is a rich topic, and we could go uh, through it at length. It has its um, origins uh, deep around the time of Christ and, and grew up with uh, uh, many uh, philosophers. Uh, and it's first and foremost about logos. They say the word, the underlying truth of the universe. Well, now, Stoics, when you, when you analyze it, they, they take that and then they focus on self and the practice of virtue and the necessities therein and they're passionate that we should not be controlled by events but that we can choose our responses and that that's always up to us and that's where we should gain our uh, uh, source and if you have to think about that for a moment even though Stoicism is not Christianity, there is really only one difference in that. They took the word logos and they said, well, it was about self or about a greater universal truth. Well, if you read John 1.1, logos, the word, you know, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. Well, that ties the concept together in a much more profound way, but there is a really really striking uh, parallel there. So I'll ask for the first slide now, Dan. We've come to the AV portion of today's show. So this this guy's name is Epictetus, and he was a slave. And a lot of people who write about Stoicism refer to Epictetus because he was a pretty smart slave. He was very wise. He um, made a very strong point of emphasis that external events are beyond our control. The trials you encounter as you go through these external events will show your strengths. Never lie. You know, that was, that was so key for him, and I mean, like, the ninth commandment, baby, eh? And in today's day and age, I mean, like, it just breaks my heart looking at all the uh, stuff in our different spheres with disinformation, people purposely misleading people. It, it, it's nauseating, if you will. Um, there's a concept that I want to take a little farther that people like Epictetus and people who uh, spoke of uh, Stoic history and whatnot also um, point to, and it's wrapped up in a phrase, and uh, I'm, I'm interested uh, to understand, you know, uh, how many people might have encountered something like the phrase memento more. The memento more is translated to remember you die. And the point of the saying is that it's a motivation to do what is right today, to take advantage of every opportunity. another way to say of it would be to think of yourself as dead, that everything behind you has happened um, and all you have is a decision to do um, the absolute best with what is left in front of you. Look in Ecclesiastes, chapter 7. There's a verse that they talk about all the works. You know, remember, during all your works, remember your last end, and you shall never sin. Well, even if you don't want to overemphasize the bit about, remember, one day you'll die, you can flip it, you can say, memento vivere, remember you live. It's the the same point. It's the same way to apply a principle, to distill down a principle, and then to think about what's right in front of you. And, you know, the conclusion, if you will, the big sentence that comes out of that is that in all of that, we can liberate ourselves from fear and anxiety by submitting to the will of the divine. And that. That's all we're called to do, actually. Is, what is the main message of Ecclesiastes? So I, I uh, as an adult, it was tough for me to read as a kid, but as an adult, I really like reading Ecclesiastes. And, and when you um, put it in just kind of colloquial language, it's, it's like, well, life is kind of tough. There's nothing fully satisfying about trying to master any part of life. It turns out you need more than that. You need God. But you're supposed to live life anyway. Or you could say something with this kind of twist. Man can never be God. Man lives in a world God set up in such a way that reminds us we can never be God. The more we seek to be like God, the more obvious it is that we could never be God. And yet God Gives us the charge to treasure and enjoy life, you know, one day at a time. Um, many of you will know the name Victor Frankl. He wrote a book called *Man's Search for Meaning*, which uh, I heartily recommend. And it's about his um, uh, observations in in uh, a concentration camp in World War II. And he comes out of it talking about the one thing that we control, and that's that space between stimulus and response. And so he acknowledges that there will be stimuli, really tough stuff maybe, but that our power is that we get to choose our response. And in our response lies our growth and our freedom and that, that everything that we do every day matters right in front of you. So, memento vivere, you're, you're living, do it right in front of you. Get, get into the game, do your part in God's grand design. You know, what your part is, I'm not actually sure. It, sometimes it's hard for me to know what my part is, but there are things right in front of me, there are things that impassion me, There are things that are waiting to be done. And we underestimate our own ability to matter at our own peril. So let me say that another way. I don't think we should ever underestimate that what we do matters. And my intent with the uh, rest of my time this morning is just to through a few vignettes and through some things that are personal to me or that I care about, uh, attempt to reinforce that, to, sh- to show you um, concepts there. And one of, the, one of the things I've read about in this past year uh, is described by social scientists as what's called the butterfly effect. And so the concept is the butterfly flaps its wings and maybe Things lead on and there's, there's a hurricane over there. Well, there is no automatic multiplier with everything you do. There is not meant to be leverage on every action you ever have. But the point is, we don't know how things ripple out. We don't know what the grand design of the grand designer is all leading to. And. When I've read about the butterfly effect, sometimes people say, well, but how does that actually square with biblical principles? I don't, I don't have any difficulty in that area, though, because Jesus talks about the choices we make in all parts of our lives. He, he definitely speaks of, uh, you know, people's wills. Uh, there's parts of Hosea that talk about almost the exact same concept as what I've just mentioned, that the social scientists talk about. And, and there's, a, there's a verse that talks about, You know, sowing in the wind and reaping the whirlwind. That's definitely speaking to how decisions you make along the way will have consequences. I believe that. I don't, you know, subscribe to predetermination only. I think there's this amazing, indescribable tension between predetermination and and free will, and it's at the very heart of, uh, you know, that, Mystery, that majesty of God that I couldn't even begin as a human to, to be able to put into words. So if we think about, you know, Viktor Frankl's point, then the next step is choose the response. What's the next thing we will do with the thing that is right in front of us? And so uh, I'm going to ask uh, for the next slide. And this is actually a mustachioed photo from 30 years ago of the actor Jeff Daniels. And it turns out that in this moment, Jeff Daniels is playing a man by the name of Joshua Chamberlain. And I said this was going to be story time with Jim, so here we go. So the bottom line is, I've always been fascinated by the American Civil War, reading about it, the history of it, and and this is uh, the Battle of Gettysburg. And so around about 1993, Ted Turner took a very famous uh, novel of historical fiction, and he made it into a four hour movie, uh, a really long thing. Uh, But uh, there's a super important point from this, and if you can imagine, um, even if the Battle of Gettysburg is not familiar to you, you know, basically you have the, the Confederate forces, the pro-slavery forces, if you will. They're on the march. They're starting to threaten the capital city. And the two great armies are meeting in this uh, uh, corner of Pennsylvania. Um, but this guy, Joshua Chamberlain, who just happens to be a man of courage, a man of faith, a man of deep conviction, and a school teacher from Maine, uh, is actually credited with basically turning the entire war around. And it was all based on what he did on one afternoon on July 2nd. So, not a soldier by trade, not particularly, in my mind, prepped for this moment. There is some big-time adversity going on, the sun's hot, You know, he's got the enemy charging up uh, Little Round Top, which is the name of a hill uh, in Gettysburg, famous to that battle. Maybe one day I'll get to stand on it and see what what he saw. But what he saw was pretty scary, and he wasn't in a great place, and he was hungry, and he was tired, and he was afraid. And then it turned out he had two other problems, because now his company was out of ammunition. They were the left flank of the Union line. He didn't have a proper communication channel to his headquarters. And he could see that if this advancing army group broke through or got around him, that they were gonna flood in the back of his entire army's line and that was gonna be the end of that. So there's a very famous motion and if you're, if you're all about visualization, uh, try and find uh, an old um, copy of uh, Gettysburg and you can watch how it goes. But he does a big motion and he tells all his uh, uh, company that they're going to sweep down like a jackknife closing. And so they basically sweep down with one big 90 degree motion. And it is awesome and brilliant in its simplicity and effect. And it turns the tide and the enemy is overwhelmed out of kind of a surprise. And basically, in that moment, he changed the course of the war, and he changed the course of history. I could fill encyclopedias with the details of what would be different in the world today if this one guy, Joshua Chamberlain, didn't actually stand there and do something in the face of great duress. Hit me another slide there, Dan. Here's story time number two, and um, this is a stained-glass window picture of St. Stephen. I would not have gotten that right if you would just randomly asked me that. But it's there to remind me of a guy named Stephen, who I met in university in 1989. And Stephen matters to me for a simple conversation he and I had. He was an outreach worker. And we got talking, and he was like, well, where are you at in your faith walk? And I said, I'm a Christian. And he said, okay, yeah, isn't that interesting? And he was kind, and he was compassionate, and he he cared. He gave off caring vibes. But he was no nonsense about one point. Because as he got talking with me, he realized that I'd really never read the Bible. I didn't really know what was going on in the Bible. And he's like, whoa. How can your faith be real if you don't know what's in there? I was like, well, I don't know. You know, it is. Something like that. Uh, But with a simple conversation, he set in motion the bit where I actually, and in the next year I read the thing, and I read it front to back, which it turns out I don't actually recommend if you're new at it, because you get bogged down in Leviticus, it's bad. But but anyway, I've since then, uh, and now uh, hit me with another slide there, Dan. I've since uh, fallen in love with the Bible in One Year app. And so this is from the people who make uh, the Alpha series. Um, and there's other apps. It's not just this one. I don't need to um, direct you any one way. But, you know, the, the way that I get the most out of reading the Bible in one year, and I've now done it, uh, you know, up to a dozen times, is when you blend a little bit of Psalms and Proverbs with a little bit of the Old Testament and a little bit of the New Testament every day. And the words matter, and the words mean something, and I feel confident over the years that the Holy Spirit has infused those words with meaning for me, and that things have um, uh, been ignited or brought to bear because of that. And the truth is, I don't know if Stephen doesn't actually have a real conversation with me, whether I ever really go down that path. Maybe I do. Maybe it takes me 10 more years. I'm not sure. I don't know where Stephen is, but he matters, and he mattered to me. And so shining moments can come just from simple conversations or simple encouragement. Hit me with another slide, Dan. So this is the audience participation slide. And uh, I uh, have four offspring, but I don't have four children anymore. So back when they were children, they watched a lot of this. So is there anybody in the crowd that knows six names? You have to be able to give me six names. You have to be able to name each of the vegetables. And then you have to tell me which characters the vegetables are playing in this moment in time. Okay, yeah, so Larry the Cucumber, yeah. Bob the Tomato. And Junior asparagus, this is Junior, because there's a, there's a whole asparagus family. Hot, right? it, well, I, there's a lot of grapes, uh, but sure, yeah. Okay, so, so the bottom line is, this is Rakshak and Benny. So they're playing Rakshak and Benny. And Rakshak and Benny is the Veggie Tales variation for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So we're in the third book of Daniel. And uh, I'll just make sure that everybody in the crowd uh, knows where we're at. So basically, we've got the exiles in Babylon. Everybody's uh, been hauled off to Babylon. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar's running the show. And, uh, you know, Daniel is being prepped for leadership. And then these, these three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are also being prepped for leadership. They're spending a lot of time. Uh, being trained up, and, you know, this isn't great. This isn't cool. They're in a country they don't want to be in. Uh, They're under someone else's um, authority they're not really keen on, and now they're kind of being guided in a way that uh, maybe wasn't what they had on the menu for their lives. And uh, now Nebuchadnezzar has just announced that he's got this golden statue, and when these other and a few other musical instruments start playing, you're supposed to bow down to that. And they're like, "Uh, this isn't gonna work. We're not gonna bow down to your thing. I was reminded of this story because I was thinking about people that made a difference in my journey. And uh, there was a moment in my first year of medical school where a guy came to uh, speak to Uh, our group and he was talking about World War II and he was talking about the Battle of Dunkirk and so if you imagine the Germans are in the early stages of their blitzkrieg at the years 1940 and the British uh, Army at least a strong portion of it had landed in Belgium and France but now we're being cornered in and around near the city of Dunkirk and at one point uh, you know, they were getting uh, really uh, uh, worried that maybe they were actually gonna be encircled and actually crushed. And they sent a simple three-word telegram to their high command, and at the time, it was immediately understood, it had a richness, it had a very core conviction in its message. And so this guy by the name of John, he, he's speaking to us, and he bet that basically none of us would understand the source. Uh, of the, the three word telegram and, and what was going on. And when you think of all the things that you know, were happening in, in Babylon and whatnot, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar is about to say, Well, if I uh, don't get your obedience, I'm about to throw you in the fiery furnace, then the answer that Rakshak and Beni are giving is Well, our God is able to save us and rescue us from the furnace, but if not. So, but if not was the telegram. And the point was, we serve a God who is all-powerful and can save us. But if it's not his choice to do that right now, we're still not going to bow down to your golden gods, give up, Surrender to the Nazis, you can fill in the blanks. The point is, you know, that in here we have, you know, the magic of language. And we can have uh, a real shining moment in just understanding what a core phrase can uh, mean to people. And it really is the secret to peace in a pandemic, I think. It gets back to the point we made. We either believe that there's a God in charge and that there is a master plan, or you don't. You liberate yourselves from fear and anxiety by submitting to the will of the divine. Because sometimes, you know, over my uh, adult journey, I, I have observed, you know, certain ways of, of Christians sort of sometimes thinking and acting. And, uh, you know, uh, I'll give a hat tip to the website Jesus Plus Nothing for the little dramatization I'm about to do. But, you know, imagine a possible prayer meeting in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's time. So, here we have the prayer group. So, okay. Oh, Lord, change Nebuchadnezzar's heart. And God, not now. So, we're back to the prayer group. Oh, Lord, keep the men out of the fiery furnace. Think of their families. Stop the horror. God. God. I want them in the fiery furnace you know back to the prayer group in God's name we command the flames be gone God Uh, turns out I've got something to show everybody and what goes on they get thrown in the fiery furnace you know the Christophany if you will the The foreshadowing of Christ, the fourth figure is in there. Nebuchadnezzar has an immediate change of uh, his stance, adopts a faith perspective. And the shining moment comes from the but if not faith. Who could have predicted all that to come out? Another slide for me, Mr. Dan. So this is Martin Luther King, Jr., and uh, all the adults in the room are familiar with him, and, and he has an amazing gift of oratory, and he uses his gift, amazing. He was assassinated at age 39. I mean, I, it's hard for me to believe I've lived 11 year, more years on the planet than he has, but I know a lot about him just from listening to his speeches or his sermons. And, the clarity of his words, the richness of his of his meaning, the way he talks—I mean, it, it's it's uh, it's powerful for me. And he has a he has a clip from a sermon. It's about six minutes long, and he goes through and he talks about the if faith or the though faith. I'm only going to do this for a minute. I won't be uh, dramatizing Martin Luther King speaking. I, I can't hold a candle, but in essence, it goes something like this. So many of us have an if faith. So God, if um, you keep me out of prison. So, God, if you make sure I'm not persecuted. So, God, if you bless my family. And so, God, if I'm in good health, then I will have faith in you. But what we need is a Job faith. We need a though faith. We need a though you slay me, yet I will trust him faith. Because religion's not a bargaining chip. Though things go wrong, Though evil is temporarily winning, though the earthquake comes, yet will I trust him. I, I, I've heard uh, Martin Luther King Jr. You know speak of the need that all of us discover something so valuable, something that grips you so much, that means so much to you that you would actually die for it because then and only then are you free to live. Because the alternative is if you're only truly alive when you're cherishing your life, you're clutching under your possessions. You will paw and paw and paw at the things that matter to you, your status, or something like this. And it will consume you. It will be a burning fire deep in your soul. And no matter what, you will actually be dead inside anyway. And what's the point? Last slide, maestro, please. So, I, I'm not gonna put anybody on the spot but I would be practically shocked if anybody knows this person because one week ago I didn't but she's responsible for the best-selling devotional book in the world and her nickname was Biddy and she was an excellent stenographer and she did a great job of taking shorthand notes it was her skill and she's the wife of Oswald Chambers And Oswald Chambers wrote My Utmost for His Highest. Or did he? Because he gave a lot of sermons in his life. And Oswald Chambers spoke to people and was passionate. And he died young too, he died at 43. But along the way, she took shorthand notes of so many of his talks that now the daily devotional I do from My Utmost for His Highest comes from stuff that she wrote down. And so, her shining moment is, is, is to be a helper and to, to store stuff up for the future. Because there was never planning to be some devotional book. It's not like Oswald wrote down a bunch of devotions with the idea of putting that together. But posthumously, she made it one of her projects to do that. And it's a total gift. Uh, you know, I think from the March 11th, Uh, devotional. uh, You know, the one line that I took away from that one was, the great thing about faith in God is it keeps a person undisturbed in the midst of disturbance. It matters. He talks in other parts about how the only way God sows his saints is by his whirlwind. Sometimes you just have to let God disperse you and see where you get planted and what crop comes from it. And so that that leads me to the, uh, to the wrap up and if you want to follow along I'm in 1 Peter the first chapter of 1 Peter um, verses 3 to 9 for, for my purposes the message was the translation that, that spoke the most to me but, but any translation you have will get the point but I'm going to read from the message because I think it It puts a bow on the kind of uh, things that I was trying to share today. And it goes like this. First Peter chapter one, verses three to nine. What a God we have, and how fortunate we are to have him, this father of our master Jesus. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, we've been given a brand new life and have everything to live for, including a future in heaven And the future starts now. God is keeping careful watch over us in the future. The day is coming when you'll have it all, life healed and whole. I know how great this makes you feel, even though you have to put up with every kind of aggravation in the meantime. Pure gold put in the fire comes out of it proved pure genuine faith put through this suffering comes out proved genuine when Jesus wraps this all up it's your faith not your gold that God cares about he will have that on display as evidence of his victory You never saw him, yet you love him. You still don't see him, yet you trust him. With laughter and with singing, because you kept on believing, you'll get what you're looking forward to, total salvation. Sometimes, you know, even while Simon Peter is writing of suffering, he's emphasizing joy. And sometimes it takes suffering to produce empathy, to produce compassion to produce harmony. Would you pray with me? Thank you, God, that Jesus has come so that we might have life to the full and that we might experience that fullness of living by surrendering our claims to earthly things, whatever shape or form those may be for us that we become truly alive when we remember that our singular purpose on this earth is to know you, to love you, and to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.